want to welcome you to this version of Time to Man Up slash Table Talk. We are excited about the opportunity today as we are going to be speaking to Les Wilson. He's going to be our guest on this segment of Table Talk. It is always a great opportunity to talk to individuals and just find out about their background. And so, Les, thank you very much for joining us today. I can't wait to hear your story. Well, thank you for having me, Sean. Well, we are going to uh, explore into his experiences as a basketball coach. Uh, growing up, I would always tell people I was a center in a guard's body. You just have those guys that I always love to bang under the board, but I did not have the body for it. I think I graduated college, maybe 155 pounds at 5'10". But man, I love to go position under there and just deal with the big boys. Now, did you play basketball growing up then? Yeah, I played in grade school and high school, and uh, that was as far as I went. But uh, just got hooked on on the sport and uh, got into coaching at an early age and uh, just uh, 37 years in, in basketball and loved every minute of it. Yeah, that's amazing. And we're going to be just kind of going through and seeing uh, the path that Les took. Uh, he, I, I don't even know many of his stories, but I have heard he has some amazing stories. So now I've put him out there. He's got to step up now, right? He's got to step up his game, but we're going to put a full court press on him. Okay. We won't use too many of those basketball terms, but we're going to put a full court press on him because we want to just hear how he got from point A to point B to then you step away from the game. That's a big moment when you step away from the game too. So we're going to be uh, looking at that and working our way through there. And so I think it's, it's probably best for us to start just so that those that watch this, listen to it, that they can understand. I mean, you can see if you're on Spotify or YouTube, you can see all of the stuff in his office because that's the cool thing is today we are mobile. It's not our normal podcast room, our studio. We have stepped outside and we're actually in Les's office where he has a lot of memories. And uh, for me, it's just basketballs and things like that. But each one of these items tells a story that is significant uh, to Les as a coach, as an individual. And uh, we're going to hear about that. So Les, why don't we just start kind of just talking about your upbringing and how you got from being born to now you're coaching and you're involved in that kind of talk to us through that. Okay. First I have to preface everything by saying I've been truly blessed. I've been blessed with uh, a great family, a wife that's very, very supportive uh, in the coaching field and, and followed me. And uh, I have been uh, around a lot of good uh, coaches and especially players and uh, just people that supported me, the support staffs. So they've just been a blessing to me in my, my career. Um, I guess I really got hooked on sports as a young, uh, youngster, uh, maybe, a, uh, eight or nine years old as a bat boy, um, for my, my cousin, uncle Rick. And, uh, he was a really good athlete in, in, uh, uh, Fairfield, Illinois. And, uh, he, uh, was, uh, all state football player and, uh, a really good pitcher and was scouted by several major league uh, baseball clubs. But uh, I just wanted to follow him and uh, and try to do the best I could do and, and to be the best I could be at in in any sport that I really chose. But um, uh, from there, I, I just, you know, regular road, high school or, or junior high and high school basketball mm -hmm. and football. 
and uh, went to a junior college for two years at Alney Central College. Uh, didn't play any sports, but uh, I got my education uh, after transferring to Eastern Illinois University and had a bachelor's degree there and um, looked for my first coaching. Uh, I wanted to be a coach, uh, my first coaching um, uh, situation. And uh, I had a high school coach by the name of Pete Love. And my mom and dad divorced when I was 13, and my dad left when I was 13. So I didn't have a male figure mm. in my life. But Pete Love was an assistant uh, basketball coach and uh, PE teacher. And I learned, like my sophomore year in high school, that I wanted to be like Pete Love. Wow. And he was a great mentor to me and uh, always said, you know, achieving is believing less. And he pushed me in, in basketball practices, and I was like the sixth man, but I pushed – uh, the varsity point guard every day in practice. And I just, I just developed a good work ethic. And, uh, I, I thank him for that today, but, uh, that was one of my mentors and role models as I grow, was growing up and getting through high school and, um, just such a blessing to me. But, um, I went on to graduate and I got my first coaching job and a small parochial school. I, I think I put out like 126 letters oh, wow. after my graduation. And it was two days before school starts in Illinois. And I get this call from this parochial school and they said, would you come down and interview? We start school in a couple of days. And I didn't have a job. And, uh, I said, sure. So I went down and interviewed for it and got the job. And two days later started my career, but, um, it was, uh, PE health world history, uh, assistant or excuse me, head, uh, baseball coach, wow. head basketball coach, athletic director, for $7,000 a year. Oh, my goodness. That was in 1973. Wow. So I thought, I'll take it for the experience, and uh, that's what I did. And uh, uh, they actually came to us in March that year, and uh, we were going to close the school unless they got proper donations and funding, which they didn't. So I went on back to Fairfield, and uh, my bride, uh, we uh, um, was married in there in Fairfield and, uh, I worked at odds and end job. And one day out of the blue, I got a call from Farmington East high school in Northern Illinois, and they'd saved my application from a year before. Oh, wow. So I felt like God was knocking on mm -hmm. the door and, uh, they said, you know what? Um, if you get your minor in driver's education, you can have this job. And so I quit my job, uh, and, uh, Went to school, back to school, one one class, drove back and forth to school and got my driver ed minor. And my wife and I uh, uh, moved to Farmington, Illinois. And uh, that was my first really big job as assistant basketball and and uh, had a mentor there, Bill Wilson, who was, you know, twice my age. But he was just like, a, again, a father figure to me and helped me down the ropes uh, to learn the ropes. And uh down the road of coaching. And, uh, so my wife and I started our, really our lives there and our, our kids were born there okay. and, and, uh, enjoyed the time there. And, uh, um, after that, um, I went to a school about 30 miles from Farmington called Dunlap. And it was just a, a great situation, a new school with a tartan track and, uh, swimming pool and the facilities were just great to sit yeah. in the backyard of Caterpillar mm. and had all kind of money. And, uh, I, I, I was assistant basketball coach there under a friend that was just really good to me. And, and, uh, also coach football. And we were very, very successful. 
And lo and behold, the basketball coach decided he was going to come to Florida. So he left and came down here and uh, uh, coached down here. And he said, why don't you put in your application down here? And uh, I said, okay, you know, so I uh, mailed in an application to superintendent schools of of, uh, Marion County. And uh, there was a job open at Dunn-Ellen High School. Mm. And um, they called me and they said, could you come down and interview for this job? I said, well, you know what? We're coming down on vacation next week. And they said, perfect. So I came down and uh, Dunn-Ellen was brand new, beautiful school, all types of facilities. And and, uh, I thought it was a great situation. And uh, they offered me the job right there. So... Uh, went over to Daytona beach and laid on the beach and my wife and I talked about it and decided to make the move. So we uprooted our family from Farmington, Illinois and, and, uh, came down to Dunellen and unfortunately things just didn't pan out and work out the way I wanted it to. And that's a big change. That's a big change. I mean, that's a, you're giving up everything yeah. and moving to an entire different place. Exactly. Not knowing if it's going to work or not. Right. Which means you have to have a very supportive wife in that, exactly. in that transition. Exactly. That's amazing. Yes. And so things didn't go super well down here. What was next then? Well, then I got on a bus and came back to Illinois and, um, uh, I interviewed for about three jobs. And one of the jobs that I really wanted was my hometown. Mm-hmm. And I always wanted to come back to my hometown yep. and coach. Yeah. Uh, and I got real close. I was a finalist, and it did, I didn't get the votes, so I didn't get hired. I interviewed at a little school called Oblong, and then another school, I believe it was Duquan, Illinois. But anyway, Oblong offered me the job, and uh, I took the job, and I was there 29 years. And coaching and coaching there and coaching uh, various points around, uh, after I got done like six years at Oblong, I went to uh, junior college ranks, and I coached okay. four years at junior college at Lincoln Trail Junior College, and uh, enjoyed that. And then they combined the position that, that my coaching position and AD. I was AD at that time, and combined that for the baseball coach. So uh, basically, I was out of coaching for years, mm. and uh, I was happy, and uh, I got to see my kids do a lot of things, right. and. Um, really content. And then all of a sudden God knocks on the door again as a a fellow coach, but now a principal at a neighboring school says, you know, I like your style and uh, I know you're a disciplinarian and uh, we've been going through two seasons of six and 22 and we need some uh, new um, life in our system. And I know you can bring it to this, this school. And I said, well, I've been out of coaching for a while. And he says, I know that, but I know you. So uh, I took the job and uh, uh, we finished that year. I think we won 14 games, but you would think after six and 22 mm-hmm. season, right. you, you, you won the regional section right. or whatever. Yeah. But in the meantime, I was driving from my home in Robinson to Washington, Indiana, which is a 50 mile drive. And I was doing that in summers for summer driver education, and they were giving me a car and a credit card and very good to me. And I was doing that over the summers. Uh, uh, and then I met the basketball coach at Washington High School, and he didn't realize that I was coaching, and we kind of hit it off. And uh, I was still coaching in 
this school in Illinois and uh, things went really well. And I had a camp set up with like 53 campers and that's the best they'd ever had. Mm. And, you know, but I walked down into the gym. He says, come on down to the gym. And I'd never been to the gym. I'd always been in the office and stuff in the car and driver ed. And I went down to the gym and Sean, the hatchet house is an arena a high school arena. It's the second largest arena, high school basketball gymnasium seats 7,000. And I walked in and I looked up and saw that scoreboard. And I thought, this is amazing. I got a coach here. And, uh, so I went over and talked to the coach and, and, um, uh, he said, would you be available or would you want a coach here? And I said, absolutely. Right. So he gave me. It's like, let me think about it for a minute. Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> but this guy, Dave Omer, was just so special to me, and and offered me this position and as a head varsity assistant, and the pay was like twice as what I was making in okay. Illinois. Yeah. But it was a still a drive, and I said, Dave, you know, I got to drive here fifty miles and fifty miles home. And mm-hmm. he says, Well, we'll structure our practices where the girls practice first. We'll practice later, and you can make all practices. So they really bent over backwards for me, and uh, such a great guy. And 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 uh, we went through a lot together. Uh, and I'll get into that a little bit later. But uh, we went through a lot together emotionally and mm-hmm. uh, with that team. But we were able to win a state championship in two thousand and five. On last uh, last second shot by Luke Zeller, uh, but I was there for four years, and then um, the last year that we, we won the state championship, uh, Dave Omer decided he was going to retire, and he let everybody know that before. And so a new coach came in and asked me to stay another year for the transition period because he could bring in his own staff, which he did. So in 2006, I was done at Washington, still living in uh, Robinson, Illinois, and uh, won a state championship. And I'm thinking, that's as good as it gets. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't know about you, but I kind of felt like one more. I just Mm -hmm. need one more. Right. So... uh, Lower, Lord to behold, the assistant job at Robinson High School opened up. Okay. And I put in my application and got the job. And uh, we struggled a few years. And then 2010, we won another state championship in Illinois. So uh, I coached until 2015. And then I retired from teaching and coaching. But, um, you know, two state championships, one from Indiana, one from Illinois, right. and then when I was teaching and coaching in junior college, we won the state championship in junior college and went on to Hutchison, Kansas for the finals and, and lost there. But uh, truly blessed and just met a lot of people. It meant so much to me. And uh, uh, like you said, I've got uh, memories all around me, and I look at them every day and think, boy, God has really blessed me. That must have been quite a grind on you going from Illinois to Indiana all the time that had to, I had to wear on you. I mean, that, that took commitment yeah. to, to be able to get through that, yeah. uh, to, to do that. I, I, I mean, I can't, I feel like I drive just a little bit somewhere and I'm like, Oh, this is an inconvenience. But when you're doing, I mean, it's amazing. They shifted around and worked with you, yeah. which says a lot about you 
and them that they were willing to do that for you. Well, they needed somebody with experience, and I was the experience. And, yeah. and you know, on the drive, you think about your practice plan and what you got to do. And then on your way home, you think about what didn't I do and what have I got to do tomorrow to make things better. So your mind is occupied. And right. I would have to mention that I did get a couple speeding tickets going to practice. So. <laughs> So what clearly you had determined that you wanted to coach uh, and what really drove that decision? Was it just something that you were like in your mind, you're like, this is what I want to do. Were there, was there an individual that you just said, man, because of their investment, that's what I want to do. What, what gave you that push to really want to, to coach? Cause it's a commitment. It is. And, a commitment. and in all honesty, yes. it's not really for most high school junior high coaches. It's not like you're getting rich doing it. Right. right. I, I mean, it's a sacrifice for those coaches. And I think a lot of times parents don't even get that those individuals, though they're getting something, it's not a great like stipend or whatever that they're right. getting to coach. Right. Right. And it's not worth dealing with a lot of the junk. And we'll talk about that later, <laughs> but what kind of drove you to do that? Well, I don't know. Maybe it was just in my DNA. I, like I said, I had a cousin that I admired, but the people I met along the way always encouraged me. And, uh, um, as I mentioned, Pete Love was just a great mentor to me and pushed me and, mm-hmm. and, and saw worth in me because at that time I didn't have a father. Right. So, um, I was competitive in high school and I just kept working and working and working. And when I got into coaching, I saw these kids that would develop and get better and, not only physically, but there was a side of them that you could mentally, you could work with them and Mm -hmm. make better people out of them. And I saw so much growth in kids that, that just, that just propelled me to get stronger and stronger in the, in the coaching field. Yeah. Were there any like, so when I think of players, and I always tell my kids this, uh, there are some that just have that it that it's not, it's not just athletic. There are athletic kids. Um, I, I can think of a lot of people won't use names, but in the pros that they had a lot of talent, they were very gifted and they started out very strong, but because they lacked work ethic as they got older. And when we say older in athletics, it's like 30 years old, right? <laughs> right. I mean, it's not like it's 50 years old, right. but as they got older, and there was a younger wave coming in. They were unable to compete because they didn't put the time in. But then there are those that have the talent and they have the work ethic and they continue. But then there's that group. And I call them kind of the Pete Roses, right? That don't really have tons of talent, but they work hard. Mm-hmm. And they're the guys that are diving across the floor mm-hmm. and you're hearing that skin burning on the, mm-hmm. on the ground. And they will give anything for that team. And sometimes I would see players that I even went to school with. And I would be like, if you had a heart like that guy, nothing would stop you. Yeah. And that's the challenge when we're trying to form individuals and try to help them accomplish their dreams. Right. Because we have dreams, but we're also trying to help that younger generation. And we'll talk in a bit about opportunities to mold those players, because I think that's one of the coolest things that coaches have mm-hmm. is that opportunity to invest. But when you were in the coaching, so I shared when we were 
prepping for this that I was a big Bobby Knight guy. And I just, man, his philosophy of basketball was just amazing. And how they just ran as a team. It was just like this well-oiled machine that was able to beat teams that were way better than them. Mm -hmm. But because they were coached well, they were disciplined, and they just functioned really amazing. And I'm sure there were times when it wasn't very fun to play for him. Mm -hmm. But he always got the most out of those players. Exactly. Who are the guys that you look to, whether pro coaches, college coaches, that you kind of look to as as looking up to them, patterning after them? Who are those individuals? Well, uh, that'd have to be Bob Knight. Um, early in my coaching career, I was a, a Bob Knight disciple. I mean, I read all his books, I videos, anything I could get a hold of that was Bob Knight, I did it. And I tried to indoctrinate all of his defensive philosophy into my programs, you know, see ball, see man, ball, yep. you man, triangle, mm -hmm. you know, help and recover and all that stuff. And I was very fortunate that um, I got into uh, camps at Indiana. And I had a friend that was on the staff there, and uh, he got me into my first camp with uh, Coach Knight. And um, needless to say, I was scared to death. I was a young coach, <laughs> right? intimidated. But um, um, just being around him and learning and picking up things uh, from him and his staff and other camp coaches was uh, so beneficial in, in my philosophy, develop, developing my philosophy and coaching. So yeah, he was out there and, uh, you know, I, I worked his camps and, and, and got a true feeling of Indiana basketball. And, uh, so he would have to be one of the ones that I really looked up to, up to. I had some high school coaches, John Kimball at Dunlap high school. That was, uh, one of the top basketball coaches in Illinois. And I okay. got a lot of stuff from him. And, uh, so, um, I still good friends with him today and talk to him just about weekly, but he's just, uh, was such a great, uh, basketball mine in the state of Illinois. So I learned a lot from him. Uh, I mentioned, uh, Farmington, uh, we had a coach there, my Bill Wilson, and he was, uh, an excellent basketball coach, but he was an excellent person mm. and dealt with kids and, and people really well. And I learned, you know, that aspect from him. So, uh, Dave Omer at Washington was just, uh, just uh, a very mellow, but a very great person. I mean, uh, Christian person, uh, hard worker, and, you know, gave responsibilities to me and had, uh, you know, I grow from that. I just grew from that uh, opportunity with him and uh, really respected him. And um, so I would say those, those were the people that, that really I looked up to and, uh, help propel my future in basketball coaching. Yeah, that's really great. I, I would always find myself defending Bobby Knight, and it was interesting because I couldn't defend throwing a chair across the court. <laughs> There's just no defense of that. But what I think was undervalued with him is how he cared for his players after they were gone. Right. And the relationships that he had forged with those players. I just, when you hear those stories... Unfortunately, those crazy things that he did, whether hunting things or, or throwing a chair, they always overshadowed. Amplified. Yeah, yes. all the good things that he did. And 
maybe I'm just glad that he didn't live in the day of social media (laughs) (laughs) because that might've been really bad because I can imagine he would have put his thoughts out there on social media. But there was what I, what I love is even watching like a coach K come through who was kind of that Bobby Knight guy who had a little better understanding of how to respond publicly and out with people. And you could see that influence there, but it is interesting that in this day and age, that disciplinary coach, that strong, firm coach is kind of like, it's hard to be that person today. And I'm not saying that everybody's a prima donna, but kids are told so much how great they are. Mm Mm-hmm. That when somebody actually is honest with them, because the reality is a lot of people tell them great because they're hoping that if anything ever comes, that they'll benefit from that. But so many kids are are skate through school because people are helping them out. They're getting them through those grades. They're getting Social them because they emotion. Exactly. Yep. And they just want to get them to college so they can say, hey, we put this person into college. And what we do is we just set these kids up for failure And we need coaches who are willing to say the path that you're on is not a good path Mm -hmm. and you may get all the accolades, but here's where you can end up with Mm -hmm. that. I recently went to a funeral of our high school basketball coach. And uh, when we were at the funeral and people were talking, they had said that he had never gotten a technical. I was like, what in the world? He never got a technical. That's amazing because I would have probably had technicals all over the place. (laughs) But what I loved about him, I remember one time there was a player, didn't have a lot. And uh, it's probably because probably now it would be illegal, but he gave me some money. And he said, hey, take this guy out and get him some food. Dude, that guy downed like five Big Macs. But as I'm talking to him, he was sharing his story. And man, for a while, their house had a dirt floor. Mm. And in my community, I thought, really? Somebody has a dirt floor, Mm -hmm. but as I spent time with this guy and he went on to play for a division one college uh, somewhere, maybe in Utah or something, but I was just so impressed that that coach was willing to do that. Uh, And just the camaraderie, even when he passed away to see those guys come back and just seeing his accolades, not as what he accomplished on the court, not the league championships and things like that, but more who he was Mm -hmm. as a person. Right. And I think that is so important that there are a lot of bad guys that accomplish a lot in basketball. Right. Yeah. But they step on a lot of people to get there. And the question is, how do we do that the right way where we accomplish those accolades, but we also raise men that know how to respect other people that aren't selfish and and just all self-motivated. And I tell people often the greatest battle we face is that battle between selfishness and selflessness, because it's real easy for us to be selfish, Mm -hmm. but you know that when you get that selfless player on the court that is thinking about everybody else, again, I'm a hockey guy. I always told people Wayne Gretzky always had way more assists than goals because he knew the benefit mm-hmm. of passing. Mm-hmm. And when you see a good passer, I just watched a video on Larry Bird. I'm a Larry Bird guy, I know. And I loved that Magic Johnson, Larry yeah. Bird, because I loved them both as a player. Yeah. And let me tell you what, 
those boys could pass. And yeah. I think Larry Bird actually is undervalued with his passing. Yeah, I do too. Because as a Celtic fan, he would do these no-look passes that I was amazed at. With with Magic Johnson, his full-court spin pass, where he would throw a full-court, spin it, and it would bounce right to the guy. I thought, that is amazing. Yeah. Nowadays, let's spread the court, put everybody outside the three-pointer, and go yeah. one-on-one. Yeah. I'll take a team any day over that. Yeah. But it's amazing because the culture in basketball has changed and oh, it's yeah. probably caused, made it difficult for some coaches to keep going Yeah, because that style is so different. What would have been your challenges coaching in like today's world with the players now? Oh, I could never do it now. I yeah. mean, I, I've gone to area high schools and it's the basketball has changed, you know, it's really changed. And, uh, um, I was more of a discipline coach, pattern coach, run this and run that. Mm-hmm. And, and now it's like you said, it's dribble drive and pitch and shoot the three and, and, uh, you know, penetrate and get foul. It's, it's, it's a whole different game, you know, five spread four one, four in or four out and one in. And it's just a different game now. And, um, uh, the individuals playing it are, are, are different or they're yeah. just different mindset. And it's hard when you get so much money to play a game. And for some of these kids, they come from nothing. Yeah. And so we have to be fair to that, that all of a sudden they have this money. And if they don't have a wise person on their side, they get taken advantage of. Yeah. And uh, it's just, it's, it's such a challenge with that, that I don't know how a younger generation navigates all this, but Man, I would I would not be able to coach in this day and age because it takes such a different mindset. Now, here right. here's one for you. When you go to basketball games, is it hard for you to just go and sit and watch a game, or do you find yourself always thinking, "Oh, do this or do this"? It's it's hard. I mean, uh, I can watch it for a while, and then all of a sudden the coaching kicks in, and you know you're wondering why they're not playing this. Uh, defense or why they're not playing a zone or why they're not defending well. And, you know, that kicks in, but uh, uh, the games that I've seen have been very frustrating to me. I mean, I watch a lot of college games on TV, uh, talk to the TV a lot, but uh, (laughs) uh, I've gone to area high schools and it's just, it's just a game that's changed and uh, it's tough to fit in when you, you're a disciplined coach and, and you've, spent all those years doing these certain types of things. And now it's more wide open play and up and down the court. And, uh, you know, I saw a game this year and there's 27 turnovers and I'm oh, thinking wow. 27 turnovers. And the coach said the next day in the paper, yeah, we just only had 27 turnovers. I'm thinking <laughs> I had a goal board and it was like, if you have 12 turnovers, then you didn't get right. an accolade. You didn't get a star. Or that, I mean, 12 turnovers, 16 turnovers are way too much. And he's talking about 27 and I'm going like, I could never do this. <laughs> That's like your kid comes home from a, from a test. I got a D Yeah, and he's happy because he passed. Yeah. And it's like, well, <laughs> we're aiming a little higher yeah. on that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so you, you talked about your wife and having grown up in a coach's family and my, my, my dad coached girls softball. He coached soccer. He coached basketball. And he was just always coaching something. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
I saw the value of my mom in that, that when he was off coaching and sometimes I remember the story I believe is that the first time I went out of the house was to my dad's coaching a basketball game. He was mm-hmm. coaching at that time, an elementary school, and then he moved up to junior high and then he coached soccer in high school. But uh, she took me to a basketball game. And so it was kind of destined that I was going to be involved in basketball. Never happened. But <laughs> my mom was so valuable to my dad as a support system. Mm-hmm. But I think sometimes a coach can just dismiss it, take advantage of it and fail to recognize the value of that woman behind him. Yeah. Kind of just share about, you know, your wife's role in that, uh, because 49 years of marriage, correct. That doesn't happen for a coach. If there's not a support and a togetherness in that. Right. Well, uh, again, I've been very blessed and very fortunate, uh, uh, my wife knew when we got married that I was going to be a, a coach and be coaching and go on a lot, but she has supported me. And, uh, I coached for three sports for 11 years. Wow. And so I was gone a lot and a lot of times there were drives involved. So I didn't get home till real late, but she, she took care of everything around the house and with the kids. And we had two small kids at that time. And, um, you know, she would take, bring them to the games. I mean, uh, many, many nights she would come into the gym with, you know, two little kids and, and, uh, um, make a late night drive home. And sometimes she'd drive by herself with the kids and she'd follow me cause we had two cars and she was just so supportive and always propelled me to do better. And I, I guess you know, I didn't bring stuff home to her. I tried to keep the game away from her. Right. So that I think that kind of helped too. But she was always a good listener if 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 I wanted to mm-hmm. vent a little bit. But she was always there for me. Yeah. And uh, supported me. And uh, uh, actually, you know, part of uh, the coaching family, we were uh, so associated with uh, good people uh, throughout the years that that uh, you know we were more or less a coaching family and all the other coaches had small kids. And so that worked out real well. Uh, but, uh, it takes a special person to be a coach's wife. And I got one. I was again, very blessed. And one of the most difficult things I remember when it came to soccer, cause that was in high school, how hard it was for my mom to sit up in the stands because she had to hear every comment about my dad because mm-hmm. every, uh, I say opinions are like butts. Everybody has them, but people, there are some people that are very good about not sharing their opinions. There are others that they're going to share their opinions and everybody else's no matter what. Yeah. And they're just going to put it right out there as if it's their right to do that. And I think that like when you're coaching in a game, cause I remember when you're playing or coaching, you don't even know a lot what's going on up right. there because you're so focused on what you're right. doing. Right. But your children, your spouse, they have to sit up and listen to that junk. Yeah. And I would always want to say to a parent, what if I came to your job mm-hmm. and I berated you the entire time? How would you do your job? It would be pretty hard. Mm-hmm. Right. And and it's like people don't recognize that. And the wife of a coach, 
in my opinion, not having been a wife of a coach, but I think that's one of the hardest aspects of it is that I wouldn't even want to sit with the home crowd. Right, right. To I mean, were there any times that she came home and where she had heard things or? No, not really, because um, we were really fortunate because, again, we had um, coaches' wives that sit together and they most often sit away okay. from the fans. So uh, I never heard anything from her, but there, you know, as well as I do, there's always that one vocal voice, that one person that, that, you know, that, that will yell certain things. I'm sure she heard it, but she never vented about it at home or anything like that. But um, uh, I always worried about that. I worried about my wife hearing it, but about my kids, Yeah, you know, and, but we, uh, again, we're surrounded by good people and, yeah, that's, and coaches. That wives. support system is great. And we had some really, really loyal fans that knew, you know, mm. uh, things were not going to be perfect all the time, but they were there for us and, and, uh, which I really appreciated. And, uh, so, um, yeah, I know sometimes it could have been really, really tough, but, uh, she did a heck of a job. Yeah. That's amazing. So here's a kind of an odd question. Was there ever a favorite outfit that you wore when you coached, like for those big games? I, I had, uh, when I started coaching and uh, was in, really into Bob Knight, uh, I had the plaid sports. Did shirt. you have a sport coat? I so had, did my dad. No, I had two. Oh, you had, I had two. two. And I wore the blue shirt. And uh, yeah, those were my favorites. But uh, back in the days when I coached, you dressed up. I mean, uh, at one time I had 17 suits in my closet. Wow. So you really dressed up. Nowadays, they wear the pullovers like I had. They're wearing sweatsuits when they, they wear coach sweatsuits. and stuff. They wear tennis shoes. And, yeah. But <clears throat> that's one thing about Rick Pitino that, that yes. I like because he dresses the part. Oh, and yeah. He is very classy. And that's that's the, that's what I wanted to personify somebody with, with class. Yeah. And we always dressed up and, and uh, enjoyed it, really enjoyed it. But uh, it brought something to the program. Too many coaches want to be one of the boys now. Yeah. And you can't. There's <clears> got to be a separation there because you lose authority when you become one of the boys. And I'm not saying you have to be so distant that you don't have that relationship, but you have to have balance in that. My dad had one of those sport coats, and uh, I, I was telling Les that one time uh, I was asked to coach junior high basketball and uh, I really wasn't feeling it, but I looked at it more at that time. I was a youth pastor. So I looked at it more as an opportunity to get in the schools and to be able to impact kids. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I said, okay. And uh, all of a sudden the school levy was up and guys, it was amazing because uh, the kids are trying out and evidently some important individual was trying out for the team I was coaching. And Someone showed up and they said, Hey, listen, you've, you, you've got to keep this guy on the team until after the levy passes. Well, we were just getting ready to make our first cuts. And I'm like, this guy is bad. I mean, he's like one of my worst guys. And if I keep him through first cuts, there's going to be some parents that are already mad at me. And I'm just starting out as a coach. So I did not know what to do. And, uh, I led him through the first one. There wasn't as much static as I thought there would be. And then the levy failed. And so I told Les that my coaching job was over before it even started. So I'm like 
O and O. <laughs> and, uh, but that was a really funny thing. But the, the thing is my dad, like they said, Oh, do you want to wear that sport coat? I'm like, no way, <laughs> never. But in the day, it was the hot it thing was, to do. It was a biggie, yeah. Yeah, and and today, just there has been kind of just a, everybody wants to be everybody's friends, right. and those Dick Parcells, those Bobby Knight kind of guys, have kind of gone to the wayside, and you yeah. really don't see a lot of them. Um, and now we're dealing with coaching changes all the time. Right. I mean, it is amazing how often. People are come and go. And yeah. with players now only being there sometimes one year and gone, I personally think it's horrible. I love that those sports that say, if you're going to go, you've got to stay three years. Let's put a, if you're going to get scholarship money and now with NIL, you've got to commit to three years. If not go play the G league basketball or whatever. Right. But I think that the, the colleges are, are sinking all this money into players and then they just go. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's even, this is off the subject, but I was watching a, a reality uh, talent show and there was an individual that could sing and you were like, this person could win this. Mm -hmm. In the first audition, you were like, this person could win. Well, evidently somebody contacted them. They signed with an agent and they disappeared on the show. Mm -hmm. The next show's on, different show. Same thing. A guy comes, but he commits and he stays till the very end. And I remember the, the panel saying, thank you for sticking it out. And I think that's the thing is that some people are looking for that next jump and it, whether it's a job or whatever in sports and they just, they do it. And I'm not saying don't go get what you, what you can get, mm -hmm. but there's no loyalty. Right. And we see that throughout. It's all about the dollar now. Exactly. And <clears throat> I love the coach out at um, Gonzaga. Mark Few. He's had opportunities to go other places. Exactly. And he's like, why would I want to leave here? Mm -hmm. I think he said, like, I get to fish. I get to do all that yeah. stuff. There's not the pressure on me like at other programs. Yeah. He's content. Right. And that's a big part with coaching. Exactly. Because if you're not content, your players will know. Yeah. And parents and, will know. Yeah. And you know, people have offered him the big money, the big facilities and all of that. And he said, I'm happy here. I'm a fly fisherman. I do what I want to do. There's not a great deal of media exposure there. He's been successful. He gets the players and yeah, you got to respect him for that. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know if I would be content way out there, but yeah, it's what he likes to do. Yeah. I mean, I remember interviewing for a church up in Wisconsin and they were like, the big things people do are hunt and fish. And I'm like, oh, I don't do either of those. And I'm like, how would I ever like give illustrations from the pulpit? They're going to be like, that's weird. <laughs> you know, we don't do that here. And uh, I was like, yeah, there's just not a fit with him. There's a fit. And what I love is that he's content with where he's at. He enjoys investing in the guys. Mm -hmm. and, and that's just an amazing part of it. And so that's what I want to talk to you next about. And so he's a great springboard for that investing in your players because like I shared with the coach that I worked with that, that allowed me to take out that individual and, and provide food for him. Um, I remember when Rick Majerus had a member of his team that their parent had died. If I'm getting that right, he took him up to his hotel to have pizza with him and he got busted for it for giving an improper benefit. Mm -hmm. 
that's just irritating. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's amazing what the NCA draws rules on, and yet yeah. what they choose to let go. There's no consistency, right? And I guess that's one of the benefits of the changes that have happened, even though I think it's this free system that's going to just collapse and be crazy. Yeah. But at the same time, at least now you have some more freedom to be able to invest in your players and do some things with them that a guy like Rick Majerus couldn't even do. Mm -hmm. Or when that player has a family member die and you can't even help them get home. Yeah. Uh, that's just a crime right. to not be able to do that. Yeah. What were some things just for you being able to invest in players that you enjoyed to do? And even some of the challenges of life situations that maybe those kids dealt with and how you navigated that with them. Well, <clears throat> I have to think back probably one of the, the, one of the best uh, coaching jobs I think I did. And I think my wife has mentioned this several times is, I went to this small school uh, after being out of coaching for about eight or nine years, and they were six and 22. And uh, I had a group of young men there that were not well disciplined, uncontrollable. Mm -hmm. Uh, They did their own thing. Uh, They had no structure whatsoever. And uh, I had a challenge ahead of me. so being the person I am and the programs that I've had, uh, including, you know, strong discipline and, you know, doing this the right way. And, uh, uh, I structured my program, uh, with them to make a difference. And, um, I saw that group grow and they, you know, adhered to the structure and the discipline that I had and became very loyal and close to me. And, you don't really think about that as you're coaching, but at the end of the year, they come up to you or two years later and go, coach, thanks mm-hmm. for, thanks for doing this. Right. Remember when we were 14 and 12, I'm going, <laughs> uh, yeah. He says, that was, you know, that was one of the greatest seasons we had. Yeah. And they'd had, you know, some pretty poor seasons, but, uh, just being able to do something, uh, to those individuals as individuals to bring their growth and development to where it was, uh, was so special to me. I mean, we went through a lot, but I was stubborn enough to make sure they did it the way I wanted to do it because I knew I could be successful with it. So I think I changed a lot of people in a one year period, uh, with that team and, and, uh, their growth was phenomenal. And, uh, you know, we, we had a pretty successful season according to their standards, but uh, uh, I had people come up to me and, and, and players and were so respectful to me afterwards and say, thanks for doing this for me, coach. And, you know, I was going through a hard time and you really picked me up. And mm-hmm. it's things you don't really think about that you do, but it makes a, it makes a, a difference in, in the world of an individual. And I'm guessing that with your lack of a male role model early on, that you probably were very sensitive to those things then with other kids that, I mean, you're coaching kids that don't have role models, some that have great role models. Right. A lot of them, you know, in this situation, and I'm glad you brought that up in this situation, uh, these kids were a lot of single parents Mm -hmm. come from a lot of single parents. And, um, there was just a lot of things going on in the community that I heard. And, um, you know, they just, they responded to structure and they responded to 
uh, discipline and um, they were successful, you know, and uh, I hope that I helped to make a difference in their life. Yeah. It, it's one of the undervalued. I know some people that don't play sports kind of dismiss sports as it's really, there's not a lot of value. There's tons of value in sports outside of sports, that camaraderie, those relationships that are built, that teamwork of doing what is best for somebody else rather than yourself. Mm -hmm. uh, there are so many lessons we learn that are valuable life lessons to where I wanted all my kids to play a sport yeah. because I want them to lose and learn how to lose. Yeah. You don't have to like it losing. Yeah. I, I don't want you to be satisfied with losing, but I want you to handle it well mm -hmm. because I also want you to handle winning. Well, I, I tease, and we're going to do an episode on this at some point where we talk about this crud that I'm seeing online of these little, like, kindergarten first graders talking trash to each other while they're playing basketball. And I mean, in league games for little kids, which travel and all that has gotten just so crazy at these young ages. But I watched a video where they were getting up in kids faces and I'm like, you just don't do that. You learn that because it's been modeled for you. Right. And that's a dangerous path that we're on right now because my dad always told me, he goes, handle it like Barry Sanders. Take that football and hand it to the ref and go do your job. Mm -hmm. Don't don't be patting yourself on the chest or, you know, downplaying other people. Right. And, and that has grown so much. Oh, my goodness. And that's why I wouldn't be able to coach. Yeah. Because I'd be like, get your butt over on that bench because you're not getting up. Yeah. And I just watched a video with Bobby Knight, and they were asking him, you know, how do you get a player in line? And he said, it's called the bench. And he says, and when I tell them to sit on the bench, they're going to remain on that bench. Right. And, you know, today, now, sorry, transfer portal. Hmm. That transfer portal, I agree with one time. It, sometimes it just doesn't work. There's not a connection. Uh, but there are people that have transferred three times mm -hmm. now. I know. And that's in one year period. I know. They have removed the coach's ability to discipline a player because once they don't like it, they just leave and go to another team. Right. So now what you're, you're teaching these kids, if you don't like your job, quit and go, go somewhere some, else, go somewhere else where right. I was always taught, keep going, keep doing it. And it'll make you stronger. And I think that people are undervaluing that decision to make the transfer portal wide, at least on the second time, make them sit out a year. There has to be a consequence. Mm -hmm. And I, I think agree. that that's yeah. hindering coaches oh, from yeah. investing in players. Yeah. I mean, I watch some of these teams, they're bringing in three, four transfers I know. in a year. And as a coach, I would be like, dude, stick with me. Cause if you do, you're going to get out of here and you're going to be a better person. Mm hmm but they don't care. Mm -hmm. and, and they've convinced themselves or their parents have convinced themselves that they are the best player and they're not being appreciated. Mm -hmm. Sorry. Work is tough. Right. Life is tough. Yeah. yeah. Whatever happened to developing a freshman in college into a, a, a great player by their senior year. Thank you. Yes. I mean, I mean, I know I'm old and conservative, but that's the way I feel, you know, and this, uh, portal stuff is, is, to me is it's it's ruining college basketball 
as well as the NIL stuff. I, oh. I, read, I read the other day that some of these big colleges, basketball programs are now putting together really strong financial packages to draw the best players in. Now, that's going to be a mess. It is. It's going to be a mess down the road. So whoever has the most money is going to get the better players. And, you know, people like FAU or whatever, they're not going to have enough money to compete against a Kansas or whomever because they don't have the finances for that package for that special player. NIL was not created to be a recruiting device. It was right. created to, if there was a good player, he could make some money off it. So if he ever got hurt or whatever happened, yeah. he had that money. Yeah. It wasn't for the 10th guy on the, on the, that sits on the bench to get paid 40,000 a year to come and play basketball. That's where you're getting a scholarship. Mm-hmm. Sure. And these people that devalue a scholarship say, well, they can make money. Well, you know what? Then don't come to college. Yeah. Go find another path. Don't come to college for a year and then leave. Right. And, and I just think that we are set. I mean, how many people make it to the NBA from college? Not many. Not many. Not many at all. I mean, there are a lot that get drafted, but what, it's only like a couple rounds of the draft. It's not that long. Yeah. yeah. And most of them don't stick. And there have been some really good college players that did not last long. And if they were allowed to be invested in, I mean, every time I see a kid leave after his freshman or sophomore year, I'm like, dude, I know you can come back and go to college again, but are you really going to do that? Yeah. You're going to end up selling insurance and I'm not devaluing selling insurance, but you're going to do something that you don't need a college degree for. Right. And that's a sad thing because we're robbing our kids because we've allowed them out of pressure or whatever to open up this portal, to open up this NIL with no guardrails or boundaries. And you know, as a, as a parent, I know as a parent, we want freedom for our kids, but we also want them to operate within a safe area. And that's mm-hmm. why we put up boundaries and guardrails. Mm, sure. And that's what NCA has failed to do. The NCA has failed to put up those boundaries and guardrails and they've just said free for all. Mm-hmm. That never goes well mm-hmm. for either the player or right. the schools. Right. And so that's a challenge that is, is faced now. Yeah. How did you deal with, with parents? Because I know that in my experience in sports, and I'll just use basketball, but it's in every sport. Everybody thinks their kid is going to be the next LeBron James, the Kobe Bryant, the Michael Jordan, right. or Larry Bird. I'll throw him in there, but everybody (laughs) thinks they're going to be that next guy. And the reality is it is such a small percent of individuals that, that, that are able to, to do that. And, uh, it's, it's interesting when I think about the pressure, number one, that parents put on their kids. I mean, when I was playing travel was just getting started. And you had one travel team. Now I see in baseball, there are kids that are playing every day on three different teams. And I'm like, how in the world do you do that? Tournaments all the weekends. Right. I thought for a moment that, A, you might take over high school basketball. Yeah. And people might stop playing high school because they could go and play AAU. Or you've got the, uh, is it the IMG Academy down in Florida? Right. Where, man, I mean, that's just like come and get trained for college of the pros. Yeah. I don't know how anybody could ever compete with that team because they're loaded. Right. And uh, how did you deal with, with parents? Because uh, even though we can isolate them out, there are parents that have loud voices and it just comes through. 
or they're trying to get your ear after a game. I know we, I've had coaches that had a 24 hour rule that if you had a problem, you had to wait 24 hours and then they would talk to you about, it. I thought that was yeah. a great idea. Yeah. I never did that, but I thought that's a good idea. How did you deal with that? Well, I, I, I did that. Uh, uh, basically I, I would tell parents, you know, cool off and we'll talk about it. Come in and meet me tomorrow after school, three thirty, and yeah. we'll sit down and talk about it. Um, so that's the way I approached it. A lot of times in, in hearing stuff, I, I would go in one ear and out the other and just let it go. Uh, sometimes it remained and I kind of dwelled on it, but, uh, you get through it. And I always tried to, you know, gain my composure and senses and not be emotional, uh, and dealing with, with parents. And I always tried to put everything out there at my parents' meeting. Uh, this is what I was going to do and how right. I was going to handle it. And if you disagree with it, come and see me. Uh, but I tried to put everything. I was a, I was a rules guy. I had rules for everything. And we went over those before the season started. And, you know, they would have questions. You know, why do you want to do this? And uh, why do you want to do that? And I always had my reasons. But um, I think you have to keep them informed up front. And, uh, you know, that cut down on a lot of questions and uh, irritation by the parents. But uh, uh, I see it getting worse now with parents uh, because like you said, everybody thinks their kid is going to be a star. Mm -hmm. And if they don't get the right playing time or the right exposure or their name is not in the paper, then it just boils with parents and they have to vent some way. And it's usually at the coach. And that parent is only getting one side of the narrative. Right. When their kid comes home, their kid's saying, Oh, the coach is so bad. He treats me this way. Well, they're not going home and saying, well, I'm lazy at practice. I argue with the coach and things like that. And so the parent comes in. I always told my kids that that I was going to believe 50% of what they said that when they came, <laughs> uh, because I understood that they were going to tell me a story that we always tell a story that benefits us, that, that makes us look good in that story. That's not always the reality. And uh, when we see that, it's so important for us to understand as parents even that that we need to support those coaches. I think what makes it hard for a parent right. is when the coach gives in to the vocal minority mm -hmm. and plays their son mm -hmm. or plays their daughter. Yeah. And as a parent, that ticks you off. Yeah. Because you're like, oh, so I have to be loud to get my son playing time or my daughter playing time. Because unfortunately in our world, that's what we see a lot of. Yeah. The squeaky wheel gets the attention. Yeah. And, uh, me, when I was doing coaching and I, again, basically when my kids were young, the squeaky wheel, I shut it off and I didn't even listen to it. And, and matter of fact, I was going to prove you a point and they were going to play less. Yeah. And it was the parents that supported. And I remember one time we had a girl that was on the other team. It was baseball and it was a coach pitch. And, uh, Man, she hit, she hit the ball and it hit her leg. She was out, and because uh, and the the coach was like, "Okay, you're out." I'm like, "No, no, no, no! Run to first, run to first. because the girl had never been on base before, and I'd heard somebody talking about it, and I let her run to first, and we all celebrated that she got her first hit ever. <laughs> Less we lost the game by one run. <laughs> she had come around and scored, and we lost by one run. So after the game, I'm thinking, I'm dead. 
These parents are going to be so angry at me because we had a really good team. That was one of our only losses. And uh, it was awesome. They were so supportive. They're like, we know what you did. Yeah. We saw it. Yeah. As parents, we can be so encouraging to coaches. And there's great value in that. Uh, We don't want to make it a burden for them to do their job. But we want to encourage them. And we know that when you coach... Those parents are so valuable. Yeah. And, uh, but it's a challenge. I, I told people I was a better coach than a parent in the stands. Cause when you're a coach, it's hard to sit in the stands yeah. and not coach. Right. And, uh, so I learned to take photographs <laughs> because taking pictures, then I could just like not <laughs> worry about it because I was always thinking strategy and, yeah. and things like that. So it was a challenge now. So, your son played for a different school than you coached at. Right. Were you able to get to his games? Yeah, I got to some of his games, yeah. Yeah, because that would have been really a challenge. Right. And then, so your daughter was then a cheerleader my at the school? My daughter was a cheerleader, and she was at the uh, middle school, and okay. my son was in high school, and so my wife was going all directions and then supporting me and going to my games on Tuesdays and Fridays, and so... Uh, it was a very, very busy time. So she's balancing basically three things. She is. Trying she is. to, yeah, yeah. wow. Yeah. That, and she had a full-time job. and Wow. Yeah. It's kind of like that when, when Thanksgiving dinner comes together. You're like, how did all these things come together at the same time? Yeah. That's like a miracle, yeah. right? Yeah. Everything's like, hot and on the table at the same time. <laughs> yeah. Was that a miracle that just yeah. took place? Yeah. And it's kind of like that, trying yeah. to balance all of the, the busyness. Yeah. For us, we were blessed. Both of our boys played on the same team a lot. We loved when they played on the same hockey team because it was one game and one place we had to go to. Uh, When we um, think about just uh, the reward of being a coach, we can focus on some of the bad things, but what did you find most rewarding about coaching? It's about changing lives. And I'll give you an example. Um, Small school, big school. I was coaching at the small schools. Both were in the same county. Um, I had a player that transferred from the big school to my school, which is very, very controversial, mm. having to live in the, the district and all this and that. We went through all of that, but a very good basketball player. Um, he transfers into our school, and uh, we're very fortunate, and we get to the regional championship versus the big school that he came from. Well, two nights before the regional championship, and we we're very fortunate to get there, but two nights before the regional championship, he being my best player, was caught drinking. Oh, wow. Uh, while in a car. And so we got word of that, and I suspended him. Mm. Well, people from my district, from my school, wanted to hang me. I mean, you threw the game, Coach. We could have beaten the big school, the rivalry of the county. uh, We could have won that because he was averaging like 26 points a game. But I sucked it up, and I suspended him. Mm. And, I mean, I was out on warm-up, and I heard voices from from the crowd. He's not starting. He's not there. Where is he? You know, what happened? You know, and then afterwards, you threw the game. You threw Mm. the game. So this individual, a few years later, came up to me and he said, Coach, he says, I agree with what you did. He says, you changed my life. Mm. 
Wow. He says, I have and had a drinking problem. Mm. And he said, I've suffered from that drinking problem, but you caught it in time and helped me through it. So I know you took a lot of flack for that, but he says, I really appreciate it. So that's the things, you know, that in my mind that I helped to change somebody's life for the good. That, that's amazing. At first, I thought you were going to tell me his name was Jimmy and you coached a hickory. <laughs> <laughs> for you that don't know, that's Hoosiers, the movie. <laughs> that's a good one. <laughs> I was like, was he at Hickory? Man, did Gene Hackman play him? <laughs> I have been to Hickory. <laughs> at the, and that's the thing is that having coached in Illinois and Indiana, and Indiana basketball is like life. Oh, man. I mean, it is just uh, people that haven't lived there don't get what it's like there i mean it's just i don't know if it's still that same but man in my days of growing up that was the place indiana basketball who's your hysteria yeah Yeah. i mean it just amazing Uh, when i think about your coaching career and then it comes time to step away uh, that's a difficult thing to do sometimes when you've been doing it so long how did that transition work for you how did that go well, it was, it was tough. It was difficult, but I knew that, uh, you know, uh, you start losing some of your, you know, your hearing or whatever and your faculties and, and, mm-hmm. uh, uh, I just knew it was time to, to step away. And I was, uh, I was, uh, going to retire from teaching and I thought this would be a, just a great time just to, to call it all quits. I, I've been so fortunate. Uh, I've been through three state championships and, I met all kinds of people and I I just thought, well, you know, it's time, it's time. And, uh, I'm glad I did. Yeah. That's like a perfect, uh, cause anybody that has watched the time to man up podcast knows that that's what I always say. It's time. (laughs) It's time to man up. And, uh, Les, I want to thank you for being part of this, uh, aspect of time to man up with the table talk. I have to get one last thing in because this room's pretty sweet that, that Les has with all of his memorabilia and that, but behind him, and you probably can't see it in the video. And if you're listening on audio, you definitely can't see it, but there's a record hanging on his wall (laughs) and it caught my attention. So, so Les, just tell the people what that record is. Well, in the uh, mid-60s, we had a garage band in my hometown, and we were called the Londons, and we played all, back then they had teen towns all around, and uh, we played a lot of teen towns and street dances and uh, performances at certain areas, and uh, uh, we were pretty good, and we had the opportunity to cut a record, and uh, my good friend, uh, lead guitarist, Lily Ratcliffe, uh, wrote this song, and uh, we were, uh, uh, fortunate to go to St. Louis and cut this record and just a great experience. And, uh, um, we didn't sell a lot of them, but it was a great experience. And I, I tell people, well, it went all copper. So, uh, it was not that successful, but, uh, we were hometown pride, uh, you know, garage band, rock and roll band. And we played all the, uh, sixties and, uh, music and early seventies and, uh, just, just enjoyed it, and you know, since then uh, I still keep in touch with a couple of the band members, but a couple have deceased, and but uh, it's it was just a great experience, and uh, uh, really, really, really enjoyed it. <laughs> so, in all your years, 
what is the greatest record you have? <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to tell you. That, I, want, I want to tell you this for your viewers. It is on YouTube. You oh, can, really? It, I, I'm with the Beatles and everybody else. Uh, it is on YouTube. It's called "I Love You So," and it's by the Londons. L U. In oh my D-O-N-S. goodness! Go check that out. Go check it out, and it, it you know sounds a little bo- Beach Boyish, uh, man. But it is on YouTube. So, so were you like Phil Collins singing from the drums, or um, no? I just harmonized once. In okay. a while. I don't have a very good voice, okay. but uh, I, I was a drummer, and uh, yeah, we had a six-piece band. And so, what I'm guessing is this: that's a cool record but probably nothing better than the state championships. That's right. That's the, right. The, those are pretty uh, yeah. amazing moments. He's got a picture. You can't see it, but of one of those moments. And uh, those are memories that you always have. And even looking back, I find that the further I get away from my memories, the greater they become. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> but that's just a really cool thing. So Les, thanks again for uh, joining us on table talk. And guys, uh, thank you for being with us for this episode. We hope you've enjoyed it. If you have enjoyed it, make sure that you like, share, subscribe, and get the word out there as we try to spread the word about Time to Man Up and the Table Talk segment as we spend time with individuals finding out just their life stories. Uh, it's, I think it's just always encouraging to hear people's life stories because we learn so many lessons from the difficult times and from the good times. And a lot of times we can identify with those things in our own lives. So make sure to check us out and you can go to www.timetomanup.com and see more information and also find out where we are available on YouTube, Spotify, and some other platforms. Guys, have a great day. And again, we hope you've enjoyed this episode.